is being with us, uh, you are most welcome. If you've been sick and high down, hey, we're glad to see you back. If you're still sick and you're not here, maybe uh, recognize who those people are and uh, give them a call or some encouragement. There's a lot of moving pieces going on this holiday season, so. But uh, take the time to be together in fellowship, to worship, to study the Word of God, to be in company with each other. These are important things. And uh, when we make time for those things, the Lord honors that. So we are continuing our uh, story this morning. We're going to be finishing off the fifth chapter. And uh, I've enjoyed this, but sometimes, you know, when, the, when you're preaching a series like this, the, the things that are given to you by those verses, uh, they're not necessarily the things I would just choose out of, the, out of the air. They're not necessarily the things that I would just, you know, feel like, oh, this is what I want to say. And there's something honest about that, because it forces me to preach things that maybe I'm not very good at or things that I need to hear, or things that the church needs to hear above what Calvin thinks you need to be listening to or hearing. And so for this series, I kind of keep coming back to chapter 2, verse 42, about what are the things that the early Christians devoted themselves to. It's the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That is kind of a theme that I think unlocks a lot of the fullness of what is offered to us in Acts, this early history of the church. So let's jump into chapter 5, starting at verse 12. We're told that the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So this place, Solomon's Porch, is mentioned several times. Uh, you kind of see that in this little chart here I have on the upper, the upper, here's your upper right, Solomon's Porch. It's just an area that is mentioned three different times in the New Testament is kind of this meeting area for Christians. Jesus taught there one time, I think that's in John chapter 10, and this is one of two times that it's mentioned in Acts. And uh, it's kind of this covered two-column area that was covered on the, uh, the edge of the temple, the eastern side of it, uh, was the meeting place where a lot of, a lot of what was happening this new movement was being worked out in that place. So just all that to say, the people, the Jewish people knew where to find Jesus' followers. Everyone knew where to go to find a disciple of Jesus. And although they're held in high regard, there was a lot of reluctance still, it seems, to join with them or be associated with them. I can think of several reasons for this. We just read about you know, people portraying stuff and trying to be casual about it. There's a real cost to being a disciple of Jesus. There's a real cost to not being a disciple of Jesus as well. A much greater cost in the end. And, uh, you know, there, there's a fear of Jewish
Jewish leadership, what are they going to say? The, the ones who are the gatekeepers of the synagogue and the temple, when I start going there. So there's these costs associated that kind of give some people some reticence to fully embrace this new movement. And, uh, but we are told that despite this reluctance, there's something about this that's so right and so pure. It's overcoming that reluctance and men and women are joining this new movement. People brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them, all of them, Some of the attraction to this group, no doubt, are all the miraculous healings and the exorcisms that are taking place, uh, evil spirits being driven out. In fact, the Holy Spirit is working so powerfully uh, among these early disciples that apparently all it took for a healing was to approach an apostle in faith and have a shadow, at least Peter's shadow, fall on you. And so it doesn't take long for word of this kind of healing and this kind of power uh, with a 100% success rate to get out among the people in the surrounding areas so that the towns around Jerusalem, all of the sick and the possessed, they, they know where to take them. There's stuff going on in Solomon's colony here on Solomon's porch that's going to be able to help us and take care of this. So they start pouring in. And then notice there is a reaction among the leaders of the Jewish people. There is a reaction among the gatekeepers, the ones who thought they were in charge of true worship of God. So and it's a reaction that in some ways is very human, but it's not the reaction of the poor and those who are filled with joy over being healed or having uh, uh, freedom from torment and being tormented by evil spirits. Instead of that kind of joy, the reaction of the religious gatekeepers, it betrays a very different kind of heart. So in 5, 17 and 18 it says, Then the high priest and all of his associates who were members of the party of Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. The public jail was kind of a holding pen in the temple area, or just not outside of it, where everyone could see the supposed criminals. You could walk by and see, you could make sport of them, you could yell at them. This was a form of public shaming that was taking place. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. The full message of this new life. So the message of the Lord through this angel isn't, go home, go, go be safe, go be comfortable. Thanks for doing your part. You're done. Go now. Hide away where they can't find you. But 
the message given to them is to boldly continue proclaiming the word of God so that all of the people who pass through the town, the temple courts, no matter who you may be upsetting, no matter what toes you may be stepping on, no matter what opposition you may be facing, you go there and proclaim Jesus Christ. So from the very beginning, the apostolic faith has been something that demands explanation and being taught. Without words to guide it, our faith is often misunderstood and even misinterpreted. And these early disciples, they did not leave people guessing as to their actions or their motivations. They were very clear that Jesus Christ makes all the difference. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. People falsely attribute that to a guy named Francis of Assisi. And it has a, a nice sentiment to it, I suppose, but uh, Christians have used this kind of thinking as an excuse of never using words whatsoever. My actions are clear enough. I just, I'm off the hook as far as I'm not very good at using words. They just don't flow right. They, this is a false dichotomy that this quote presents. Sharing the gospel always involves actions and it always involves words. Those two things go together. I've heard a lot of Christians make excuses. It's not my gift. Isn't that your job? It's not my place. They know that I love them. Well, they know that I go to church. My kids know where I stand. And people go years without mentioning the name of Jesus. Or testifying to the goodness of Jesus. Or honoring the name of Jesus. In your silence, other voices will speak. Think of this as, as a father. If my daughter's Tell other beggars where you found food to eat. 
or a sick person who's been healed. Tell other sick people where you went to get your healing. If you were a lonely person, tell other people where you went to find a friend. That's what I'm talking about. And when you say something dumb, or something stupid comes out of your mouth, just own it. Ask for forgiveness. Learn from your mistakes. And don't give up. Let love and humility be your motivation for everyone. Trust that the Holy Spirit will give you the words that you need in the moments that you need them. Be listening for those prompts on your heart. And let me say, uh, I'm going to bring this back to chapter 2, verse 42. The secret of finding the right words in the right moment, it comes through your devotion. It comes from your habits of obedience that you've already put into place. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. When your life is centered around teaching, fellowship, sharing bread, prayer, you will not have difficulty finding the words that you need. Why is that? It's because you speak from the authenticity of your real life. This is what I'm really about, and it shows in my devotion. And people can sense that authenticity. Even if you stumble on the words and they don't come out as you would like. It's your words together with the life that you live and the things that you are truly devoted to. If you're not very devoted to these things, you're going to have a harder time finding the words in the moments. It's no surprise then that the apostles, when they are told to go teach the in the, the same place where they were just caught and arrested for the very same thing. It's no surprise that they have the courage they need to be bold and courageous, to obey completely. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. The apostles do exactly what they're told. They're bold for the Lord and they go right back to the place where they got in trouble in the first place. They go to the place where they are most easily going to be found. And it's amazing when you look at, if you read Luke, any of the Gospels, it was just not too much longer before this that these are the same apostles that when Jesus Christ was arrested, they couldn't get away from him quick enough. Sent to the jail for the apostles. 
So they call, they're taking this thing serious now. They're not, they're not, they've already talked to, to Peter and John. Now they got all the apostles. They're going to, they, they gathered all the elders. They are going to squish this thing. They're going to squelch it. They're going to take care of it. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. They're puzzled. See, people escaping out of locked jails with guards standing there, it's a fairly perplexing experience because jailers lose their life over this sort of thing. This is not something that is common or to be expected. And then adding to the confusion, the guys who escape, they're not out on the land. They're right there teaching the people, doing the same thing that got them in trouble in the first place. They're standing there in the temple teaching people about Jesus Christ. And someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And that the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. So normally, these temple guards, if they got to go, they shame someone, they'll beat them up, they'll rough them up a bit. But this is so disconcerting. This is so unusual. The people are, hold these apostles in such high regard that they have to use a completely different tactic. Instead of smacking them around, they're more like, please. <laughs> So all of the apostles are brought before the leaders of Israel, and the high priest speaks up. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with all with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. But the, high, the high priest can't even bring himself to say the name Jesus that man, making us look bad and guilty of the blood of Jesus. And these were precisely, precisely the people who were guilty of having Jesus murdered, which Peter points out again. See, human nature is to kind of shut responsibility. Well, it was a group decision. It was Pilate. He's the one who was really in charge. And everyone wants to Step aside from the blame of any of this. It's human nature to, I think, shock responsibility in that way. But that guilt, you know, in, in an immediate sense, it applies to these were the men who did this and got this in motion to have Jesus murdered. But in a broader existential sense, every human being that has ever sinned is guilty of shedding the blood of Jesus Christ. Indeed, the path of your redemption and healing, it necessarily includes the humility of owning your own guilt and your own need. 
threefold. He says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on the tree. God exalted him to his own right hand, his prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. This would have been particularly a particularly disturbing message for the priests and leaders of Israel to hear, because by declaring repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus, you are declaring Jesus Christ as God. Peter goes on. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The implication being not only that Jesus Christ is Lord, but we are filled with the Holy Spirit because of our obedience. And you are not. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't, you know, the, the Spirit gave him those words, and those were the exact words that he needed to say in that moment. But what is the reaction? It seems like Peter had to have known what the reaction would have been. And yet he doesn't shrink back from saying these things in a very plain, in-your-face kind of way. And so when Peter also, when he's talking these things, he, he mentions God the Father, and he mentions Jesus Christ, and he mentions the Holy Spirit, all of them. The fullness of our God is represented in this. To be a disciple is to be a witness of Jesus Christ. But if you're a witness of Jesus Christ, you're not a witness alone. The gift of privilege of being a witness together with the Holy Spirit. You want to work together with the Holy Spirit. You want to power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It comes through the doorway of obedience. Obedience. This is an important lesson for the church today. Because we are together with the Holy Spirit in this. We're not out on our own. We're just not wandering blind.
I say this because a lot of times we feel isolated. We feel like we're fighting the fires of hell with the sword now. And it just doesn't feel very effective. It is a primary concern of the spiritual forces aligned against the Lord's church that we should feel inept, that we should feel weak, powerless, without authority, isolated, and alone. So, the reply from the, the gatekeepers, when they hear this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men should be put outside for a little while. In the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So who is this guy, Camilio? Well, first of all, he's a cool head in a hot room. He's a Pharisee, so he's kind of a minority position in the Jewish leadership. Later we find out in Acts that he's the guy who trained Saul. So he talks about all of these different people who appear claiming to be someone, and how once the leader is killed, the followers were scattered. Indeed, I think that was the intent behind murdering Jesus. If we can just get rid of Jesus, we're going to squelch this thing. We'll take care of this thing. But they do, in fact, find themselves fighting against God. Well, the speech persuaded them, and they called the apostles in and had them flogged. 
probably the 40 lashes minus one that they receive, which will leave a man close to death a lot of times. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. Apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Rejoicing for being beaten near to death because they had accounted worthy of suffering and disgrace in the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is. points I want you to take away from our lesson today are just these two things. The gift and privilege of getting to witness together with the Holy Spirit comes through the doorway of obedience. That means when you're in your impossible situation or circumstances, if you have a habit of being devoted to the Lord and that is your real life, and these things, they teach us how to listen to those prompts of the Holy Spirit, so that when He speaks, you will be ready to act, and you will have the words that you need in the situations that come to you. When you speak out of your words and your actions, when you learn those habits of obedience, it might be small things. Smaller things will lead to greater things. When you learn to obey, you will find yourself together with all the help and knowledge and wisdom and power you because you will be working together with the Spirit of the living God. Second, you know, as a church, we are under social pressure, we are under pressure from this culture, even outright persecution. We have to be obedient to God's call and leading. We never shrink back from claiming Jesus is never shrink back from that. You know the, you know the pressures we're under as culture, uh, by our culture today. It's, it's tough. A lot of times we are told, you know, either the church, if you're going to do that, you, you're, you're a bunch of legalists. Or, on the other end of that, you just let the culture determine what you're, what you're going to be about in regard to the sanctity of life or the issues of sexuality or you either embrace that or you're against us. And so we kind of feel like where is the safe ground to stand? The safe ground to stand is always with Jesus. And it may be a narrow path. I don't have to be legalistic. I, I can stand on the truth. I don't have to fully embrace the values or systems of this culture. There is a safe place to stand with Jesus Christ. I'm not saying it's easy to always recognize that or determine that. And I'm not saying you won't make mistakes on one side of that or the other. But I'm saying when you listen to the Holy Spirit and work together with Him, He'll get us where He needs us to be. Love the truth where 
you can speak the truth in love instead of some kind of jackhammer to destroy people, he'll get us where we need to be. He'll make a way forward for us. But the doorway to that comes through the doorway of obedience. So Rob, you can come up here in a second. I don't know how this message connects with you or what challenge it gives to you. But if we are faithful to proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I believe we'll discover more and more how the Holy Spirit always makes a way for those who desire to honor Jesus Christ. If that is the desire of our heart, he's going to make a way for us to do that. So if you need the prayers of this church, if you need to put on the Lord of baptism, whatever the need you have this morning, you can come forward and share those with me while we stand.